It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. It is downright surreal to be in the middle of something that goes viral. I mean, it happens with such lightning speed. It's like a wildfire uh, across the forest. It's just amazing. And that's what happened to me yesterday on Media Buzz. Uh, Jason Miller is my guest. He's a senior advisor to former President Donald Trump. He was a spokesman in both campaigns, so I've known him and interviewed him uh, numerous times. Uh, And we were talking about Donald Trump's plans to return to social media. And what Jason Miller told me uh, was the following. He said, I think we're going to see President Trump returning to social media probably in about two or three months with his own platform. Uh, And he kind of hyped it. He said, this is something I think will be the hottest ticket in social media. It's going to completely redefine the game, he said. Everybody's going to be waiting and watching to see exactly what President Trump does. It's going to be his own platform. So naturally, I pressed him. Is this something he's investing money in? Is he working with someone else? Uh, He wouldn't provide a lot of details, uh, but clearly he'd been authorized to say this. But says there have been a lot of high-powered meetings going on at Mar-a-Lago. Numerous companies are interested. I have the impression that there is one, maybe two companies uh, that uh, Trump plans to partner with. So, you know, he's going to be starting from scratch doing this. Uh, He's not going to start off the bat with the 88 million Twitter followers he has. But what really struck me was just how much interest there was in this, I guess because of the circumstances of the former president being booted from not just Twitter, but Facebook and Instagram and many of these other Silicon Valley giants. I mean, in an hour, it was just on websites everywhere. And within a couple of hours, I mean, we're talking here about it was picked up by CNN, CNBC, NBC, CBS, uh, Newsweek. Reuters, Agents France Press, a bunch of places in Britain, The Guardian, The Independent, Financial Times, uh, as well as Yahoo. I mean, I just lost track after a while. It was just everywhere. Mediaite, The Hill, and on and on and on, and not just limited uh, to America. So it's not because I conducted such a brilliant interview. It's because, you know, we were uh, making some news with the guy who is now part of Trump's reduced inner circle, you know, goes to Mar-a-Lago every week. And uh, I was just so struck by this. So what was it about? I think it's because Donald Trump has mostly been out of the news. Uh, He has been issuing these statements in lieu of tweeting. And I was the first to report, based on my sources, this is some weeks ago, that certainly the people around the former president and now Donald Trump himself have kind of liked uh, issuing these statements instead of you know him popping off on Twitter uh, multiple times from morning until night. Um, and, and the reason the aides like it is they can vet it better and they can make it more reasoned and they can tell them to take out certain stuff, let's not make fun of Mitch McConnell's looks, that kind of thing. Uh, so is it at odds uh, with the idea of getting back on social media? No, it totally appeals to Donald Trump that in an effort to get even with places like Twitter, that he could start something. Obviously, it might initially be of great concern, uh, great interest, I should say, to conservatives, but then every journalist in the world would have to get on it to find out what Trump is saying, doing, tweeting. It wouldn't be tweeting. It would be messaging, shall we say, posting. Um, And if he could build that up and it could be a haven for those who, for whatever reason, don't like the giant... Silicon Valley platforms, that would be quite an accomplishment. And of course, it would also serve his political self-interest because he could use that uh, 
to uh, push his candidates in the 2022 midterms, particularly in the primaries where he's made no secret of the fact that he's going to be endorsing. In fact, there's supposed to be an endorsement today in Georgia. Jason Miller teased that on the show as well. Um, And by the way, if you didn't see this, it's up on our Twitter page, my Twitter page, uh, our Facebook page, my Facebook feeds. So it's really not very hard to take a look at the interview. And we touched on a bunch of other things as well. It was a pretty interesting interview. Um, So, but just the sheer speed these days. I mean, 10 years ago, you you could have something be picked up by the next day's papers or maybe picked up, a clip would appear on other cable networks. But the sheer uh, lightning speed of it is just was just amazing, and of course everyone puts their little take on it, has their little pun, uh, like saying you know the former commander in tweet that kind of thing. So moving right along here, uh, you remember the whole, of course you do, uh, the whole kerfuffle about Piers Morgan walking off the set and ending up quitting uh, the ITV show Good Morning Britain uh, over his uh, criticism, backlash to his criticism, I should say, of Meghan Markle. Well, the show has found a replacement, a guy named Ben Shepard, who's described as a safe choice. I'm not really familiar with him. But what struck me uh, in this write-up is that Good Morning Britain has lost nearly 40% of his audience since Piers walked out. That was just nine days ago. Ah, it feels like months ago, you know? Um, wow. I mean, I guess Piers Morgan was pretty popular. Or maybe also a lot of people tuned in uh, because they hate-watched him or they just wondered what outrageous thing he was going to say. So that says to me he is highly marketable, speaking of former people who have left their last job. Uh, He has that in uh, common with Donald Trump. Uh, You know, there was always something just weird and unexplained about the Tiger Woods car crash. I mean, I'm glad he's okay. As I've said many times, I'm a big Tiger Woods fan. Uh, Not that I excuse a lot of the self-destructive things that he did. He's now home from the hospital, and, you know, his leg basically had to be rebuilt with all these pins and screws and that sort of thing. But TMZ has a pretty solidly reported story saying that the crash investigation has found so far that Woods did nothing to prevent the collision after he lost control of the car. So investigators have learned, this was reported over the weekend, Um, that he was driving at a normal rate of speed before he got to the site of the crash. Then he kind of floored it and lost control. And the sheriff's department is looking at the black box. It's like an airplane, right? This car had a black box, which so far shows Woods did not try to slow down. So if you were going too fast and suddenly you were spinning out of control, I mean, the very first thing you would do would be to slam on the brakes, right? Uh, And that has led to the theory uh, that maybe he had fallen asleep at the wheel. He got up really early that day. I, you know, that's hard for me to imagine. You know, it wasn't in the middle of the night. It was relatively early in the morning. But there's still some unexplained stuff here, and that's the TMZ story. Uh, buttressed by the fact that Woods told police, the Tiger told police after the crash, he did not remember the accident. That would suggest he blacked out, he fell asleep, whatever it was. All right. Uh, speaking of social media and conservatives, Twitter uh, has briefly suspended the account of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, she is obviously the freshman congresswoman from Georgia who has made a lot of wild claims, some of which she's taken back and said that she was an adherent of QAnon, but not anymore. But now Twitter has reinstated the account, saying the move was a mistake. Uh, in this case, our automated systems took enforcement action in error. 
The action has been reversed and so forth. I would just say this. This is why people on the right don't trust trust Twitter, because why are these mistakes always in one direction? I mean, there may be a handful of cases where liberals were mistakenly knocked off of Twitter or Facebook, but mostly not so much. Uh, And Green uh, tweeted, which I guess when she got her Twitter privileges back, I was just told Twitter suspended me for 12 hours in error the same day that Dems introduced a resolution to expel me from Congress. What a coincidence? Question mark. All right. Um, Let's talk about President Biden because Maureen Dowd, who always sort of deconstructs these things according to the personalities, has a pretty fascinating column about Biden and how he appeared in the Obama White House and how he appears now. And here's what she says. Joe Biden never had a seat at the cool kids' table at the Obama White House. Uh, Heading into 2016 and 2020, if you told the hotshots from Obama world you thought Biden would be a good candidate, they would kind of roll their eyes and give you a look of infinite patience and condescension and says, well, I can understand how someone would think that. In other words, Obama was not part of the Obama entourage. He was sort of a goofball and a windbag. He was a member of an older, outmoded generation. In other words, he was uncool. He was not a cool dude. Well, says Maureen, now that Biden has actually been POTUS for uh, six uh, weeks or so, the collective smirk was wiped off the face of Obama world as former aides expressed their irritation. Oh, they're irritated, are they? At the retrospective dissing, uh, and while Biden's inner circle enjoyed an unfamiliar sensation, schadenfreude. Now the friendly fire once aimed at Biden is coming toward Obama. So now, in other words, whether you agree with what Biden has done, whether you don't agree with what Biden has done, whether you think we needed $2 trillion or not to restart the economy and combat um, the coronavirus, Biden went big. $2 trillion. He didn't compromise with Republicans. He didn't go down to a trillion dollars. Maybe that'll turn out to have been a huge mistake. But right now, it's it's played politically as a big win for Joe Biden. So now people are looking back at the comparable thing that Biden's job actually was to sell for President Obama in 2009, and that was the stimulus bill. Chuck Schumer called it small and measly. And Biden, uh, excuse me, Obama has gotten some flack for not going out and doing the salesmanship thing, which Biden is trying to do now. He was out, obviously, uh, he and Kamala went to uh, Georgia on Friday uh, after the uh, uh, spa shootings there and talked about the Asian American community. But they're they're back on the road this week. Um, And so now that Biden has passed, this is back to Maureen Dowd, uh, his cornucopia of liberal delights, Democrats are thinking if he keeps it up, They'll soon be picking up chisels to carve his face on Mount Rushmore, right in the spot Obama must have been picturing for himself. Creaky, old-fashioned Joe moved fast and broke things, unlike the sleek, modern Obama, this is getting pretty personal, who kept trying to work with obstructionist Republicans, Biden blew them off, calling it an easy choice. Progressives who had fretted that Biden would govern in a centrist hell, trapped in a sepia split-the-difference Washington, where Mitch McConnell would eat his lunch, were presently surprised. So now comes a delicious twist, at least according to the tastes of Ms. Dowd. Uh, President Biden is being hailed as a transformational, once-in-a-generation progressive champion with comparisons to LBJ, I've mentioned that, and FDR plenty, while, Bi- while Obama has become a cautionary tale about what happens when Democrats get the keys to the car but don't put their foot on the gas. 
one more little shot at Barack. Once Obama had spoken, he expected others to come along. If the policies were good, they'd sell themselves. Well, the world doesn't work that way. The president, it turned out, hated politicking. Biden is a natural-born salesman. And just to kind of buttress that view of the world, certainly liberals are celebrating President Biden right now, he has averaged 56% approval in the three Gallup polls that have been taken since he took office, 54% in the latest survey. That's pretty good in such a polarized and polarizing environment. Although when you break it down, you look, you do see the polarization because Biden is averaging 96% approval from fellow Democrats, 55% among independents, and 10% among Republicans. Approval of Biden also high among blacks, 89%, Hispanics, 73%, uh, while less than half of white Americans, 45%, uh, give him positive marks. Uh, there's, also, there's also a big gender gap here. 62% of women, only 49% of men approve of the job that Joe Biden is doing. This is all called to, according to a Gallup analysis. Biden gets 64% approval among college graduates, 51% among those who don't have a four-year degree. And it also shows that He's got the 61% mark among residents of the East and West Coast, the coastal elite, so to speak. 53% in the Midwest, 50% in the South. But much higher marks in big cities uh, compared to rural areas. That doesn't come as a huge surprise. Um, I'll come back to more on Biden because we do have the huge problem at the border, which I've been talking about. And it's almost like a tale of two presidencies. Biden's got the higher approval ratings. He's got the success uh, on the coronavirus relief bill. That's $2 trillion for the Democrats to basically spend the way they want since no, there were no Republican votes. And then he's got the mess at the border. But before we get into that, something uh, there was a, a, a top federal prosecutor who had been assigned to the probe of the January 6th Capitol riot. And now he's got back to his old job as a U.S. attorney. And he gave an, an interview that aired last night on 60 Minutes. His name is Michael Sherwin. He was the head of the investigation. And I must say, as an old Justice Department reporter, I found it a little unseemly that he would do this job, give it up, and then immediately, two days later, he's on 60 Minutes offering his opinions about the probe, which is obviously an ongoing criminal investigation. But he made some news. Uh, Scott Pelley asked Michael Sherwin if the public should um, expect sedition charges. Sedition being conspiracy to overthrow the government against some of the suspects. There's already been about 400 arrests. Sherwin says, I personally believe the evidence is trending toward that and probably meets those elements. I believe the facts do support those charges. And I think that as we go forward, more facts will support that. Now, I'm reminded... Um, by the fact the New York Times says the last time uh, sedition charges were brought against anybody was 2010 against uh, members of a Michigan militia group accused of plotting to enter into an armed conflict with the government. They were ultimately acquitted a couple of years later. Um, but federal prosecutors almost never bring sedition charges. I mean, it's a very rare thing. So Sherwin says on the CBS News Magazine, he's asked a question by Scott Pelley, it's unequivocal that Trump was the magnet that brought the people to D.C. on the 6th. Now the question is, is he criminally culpable for everything that happened during the siege, during the breach? We have people, well, are you looking at Trump? We have people looking at everything. 
Uh, if you get acquitted, if you get convicted of sedition, you get a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. Actually, that sounds low to me. If you're plotting to overthrow the United States government and you're convicted, you end up doing less time than, you know, some drug traffickers. Nevertheless, obviously, this is getting a lot of play, particularly on certain networks. And uh, look, I'm all for charging people who are planning to overthrow the government. I'm not against that, if that can be supported, if it's not just a political charge. I mean, there were people who went to that capital, you know, they came armed, they had plotted, they clearly wanted to block Joe Biden's certification by the Congress of the Electoral College results. So we'll all watch that space. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Now back to the border. Axios has exclusive photos from a Customs and Border Protection temporary facility in the town of Donna, Texas. And these pictures were taken by a Democratic congressman, Henry Cuellar, who has been very critical of the Biden administration's approach. He represents a district at the border. And I got to say, the reason we haven't seen these pictures so far is the fact that journalists have not been allowed access by the Biden administration, which I personally think is outrageous. And they've been, oh, we're going to get the access soon. Well, this has been going on for weeks and COVID and so forth. Okay, you get a pool reporter and a pool cameraman and they distribute the pictures to everybody. It doesn't have to be 50 journalists tramping through an overcrowded facility. And when you look at these pictures on Axios, and they've been picked up elsewhere, taken by Congressman Cuellar, they're about as bad as you would expect. In fact, they're even worse than you would expect. You see these large rooms with just absolutely packed with kids sleeping. They look to my eye to be wrapped in some kind of plastic protective covering, I guess because of COVID-19. One pod, uh, said uh, Cuellar, held more than 400 unaccompanied male minors. Cuellar himself described the setting as terrible conditions for the children. This is a humanitarian disaster. There's no other way to put it, and I see it getting worse before they get be- before it gets better. I mean, the Biden administration is now scrambling. In fact, uh, the administration has awarded ICE an $86 million contract to contract for hotel rooms near the border to provide at least temporary uh, uh, shelter and processing for these young refugees, I guess you'd call them, mostly from Central America. This would pay for 1,239 beds and other necessary services. Look, Biden and his top officials keep saying the border is closed. But clearly, the border is open. And if you're putting people up in hotel rooms and I'm all for treating them humanely, what do you think? What message do you think that sends to these areas of Central America where they're pretty desperate to get out or to get their teenagers and, and children out? Because they're not turning back on the company minors. They're turning back adults, at least some adults, migrant families. So what the message it says is you can come. You can get here. You can get in. We'll put you up in a hotel or even put you up in a crowded tent. Maybe it's better than you had at home. And maybe you'll get to stay if your asylum request is granted. So... I'm all for the compassionate approach, but the compassionate approach is backfiring. And not only that, but they just don't seem to have a plan. They didn't anticipate any of this. So the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, was on four of the five Sunday shows. And I got to say, I watched him on Fox News Sunday. 
I don't think he did a terribly good job. He's very stiff, and he keeps repeating the talking points, and he doesn't acknowledge reality, which is the Biden administration, obviously inadvertently caused this. It's really bad. And um, here, the border is closed, says Mayorkas. He said this on Meet the Press. We are expelling families. We're expelling single adults. And he said, unaccompanied minors should not attempt to make this journey. We strongly urge, and the message is clear, do not do so now. I cannot overstate the perils of the journey that they take. Sure, it's dangerous, but they're coming anyway. Uh, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey said on one of these shows that uh, Biden should not have changed Trump's policies, such as remain in Mexico while applying for asylum. So now I guess they've done some sort of diplomatic deal where the U.S. is giving Mexico two and a half million doses of the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, which has not been approved in this country, although there's a new study by the U.S. saying 79% approval and no dangerous side effects, although a number of people in Europe where it was at least temporarily, the approval was temporarily suspended, got blood clots. I don't know how widespread a problem that is, but that's vaccine diplomacy. We're not using them here. Uh, 79% is great, but it's not as good as the 95% success rate for the um, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Uh, I guess Johnson & Johnson, which only requires one shot, is about 80. So this is probably comparable to that. Uh, Donald Trump has issued one of his statements, as I said earlier, since he's not currently on social media. Um, Trump said the Biden administration has turned a national triumph into a national disaster. Uh, says he should build the wall again. Yeah, that's going to happen. They're in way over their heads and taking on water fast, says Donald Trump. Uh, when Biden... Uh, was uh, talking to reporters briefly last night. He said uh, he may go to the border in the future at some point. We're in the process of doing it now. A lot more could be done, Biden said, with regard to immigration. We're in the process of doing it now, including making sure we reestablish what existed before Trump, which was that they can stay in place and make their case from their home country. But that had been the Trump policy at the end, and that's why you didn't have... I mean, look, Trump had huge problems and did not take a very humanitarian approach, in my view, separating all those thousands of children from their parents and the whole kids in cages thing. But this problem is back. It's back big time. And it is a failure on the part of the Biden administration. Maybe they will fix it, but they won't fix it quickly. All right. There's a story in the Washington Post that I think has to amount to kind of wishful journalism. And it's about statehood. If you live in D.C. or the Washington area, you know all about statehood because it's a huge grievance here. But the people who live, it's about 700,000 people don't have the same rights as the rest of the country. This is in the Constitution, obviously, because the, the District of Columbia is a federal district and not a state. So there's a non-voting delegate to the House of Representatives, at least can't vote in committee, and there's no representation in the Senate. So the Washington Post says that Joe Biden himself has made this a priority with a Democratic majority in Congress behind him, a fast-evolving political landscape that has propelled D.C. statehood up the Democratic priority list. It passed the House last year for the first time. It'll pass again easily this time. Um, Once a fanciful dream of local activists now endures near unanimity inside the Democratic Party. Many congressional Democrats mention it in the same company as the party's other top voting rights priorities, putting it at the center of the battle. This jolt of momentum stems in part from the increasingly urgent desire among Democrats to act while they have the power to erode what they see as a Republican structural advantage, which is um, 
you know, it's the great compromise of the Constitution. The House is awarded based on population. Every state gets two senators. That means that New York and California and Texas, huge states, get two senators, and so does Wyoming, and so does Delaware, for that matter, and so does Montana. Uh, and there are a couple of states that D.C. has a larger population then. And so it kind of it shifts the power to more rural states, which tend to be more conservative states, in the Senate. But that is paired with the House. That's how the Constitution was able to pass in 1787. Now, statehood supporters also say that since D.C. has a black plurality, this is a crucial element in broader racial justice. And Republican leaders are calling it a partisan power grab. Then, you know, about 10, 12 paragraphs down, you get to this. Statehood advocates still face major obstacles. They do not yet have 51 allies inside the Senate. And as long as the body's filibuster rule requiring a supermajority for most legislation remains intact, it will take even more support than that. Well, that's why it's not going to happen. The Democrats don't even have 51 votes. And I'm including Kamala Harris because there are certain uh, more centrist Democrats like Joe Manchin who are not going to vote to get rid of the filibusters. They might vote for D.C. statehood, but they're not going to vote to get rid of the filibuster. Maybe to make the filibuster more difficult. For years and years, the proposed compromise was this, because, of course, Republicans aren't going to vote for having two automatic Democratic senators representing D.C., was that D.C. would be admitted at the same time as, let's say, Puerto Rico, which might have Republican senators, and therefore it would be a wash in terms of partisan control, but at least would give full representation to the District of Columbia. You know, there were license plates here for years. On the license plate, it said, taxation without representation. And that's true. Um, look, having lived in the D.C. area for so long, I'm certainly sympathetic to the notion that these 700,000 people deserve representation in the Senate. You know, when the Constitution was written, I, I think this was envisioned as a small federal district. Well, now it's a major metropolitan area, a major city, with, as I said, larger population than at least a couple of states. But politically speaking, it will never happen unless this, it is not seen as a political giveaway to the Dems with two extra Senate seats. So it's nice for the Washington Post, which obviously is a huge advocate of statehood, to talk up the prospect and how Joe Biden is in favor of statehood and all of that. But nevertheless, unless a political solution is found, it will never pass the Senate unless somehow there's some future election where the Democrats wind up with 60 seats. That has happened in the past. Uh, it is not happening anytime soon, not in this polarized situation. And finally, if you've read about or seen the pictures of what's happening in Miami, so it's an absolute mess uh, because spring break has all of these many thousands of young people, teenagers, college students, post-college, going to Miami, presenting a great COVID risk, congregating on the beach, congregating in restaurants and nightclubs, and the mayor of Miami has imposed a curfew of just 8 p.m. and telling people not to come. So uh, Washington Post scene says that on Saturday night, along Ocean Drive, thousands of revelers stood shoulder to shoulder packing the street, uh, some of them dancing on cars, some clutching liquor bottles. Well, of course, when I got, said the dancing on cars part, you probably figured out that some were inebriated. One man threw out fistfuls of cash. Okay, you want to be near that guy. Then with the sirens blaring, the sound of pepper balls being fired, those in the crowd began to run, causing a stampede because police are trying to break this up. 
It was an absolute chaotic scene. The first night, police attempted to enforce this curfew in response to overwhelming volume of spring break visitors. This reminds me of what happens at the border. You know, you tell them not to come, and they come. And now the police are trying to do something about it. City officials have actually declared a state of emergency in Miami, Florida, because some of these parties have turned disruptive, some have turned violent. The city commissioners voted to ex- uh, city commissioners voted to extend the emergency orders uh, through April 11th. So you know Miami and places like that are sort of in mind because tourism is a major part of the economy. You want people to come, at least when there's not a pandemic. And, and, you know, stay in hotels and spend money, whether it's on liquor or food, and, you know, uh, go to all the restaurants and go to all the bars. It's, you know, it's a major industry in Florida, obviously. But this problem existed before COVID-19 in 2019. Um, police and protective armor patrolled the beach uh, in these transport vehicles. Try, and, and last year, police officers, some police officers tackled and punched spring breakers who were resisting arrest, according to the Miami Herald. Now, the NAACP is complaining about that, saying a lot of the people who come to visit for spring break are black. I didn't know that. I thought it was just racially mixed. So it's a mess, and it's particularly a mess. And, you know, how long is it going to take before, in two or three weeks, we read that suddenly the COVID rates went up in the Miami-Dade area because of all the spring break people who were... Look, you understand, it's been over a year that people are pent up. They're sick of these restrictions. They want to go out and have a good time. And young people in particular, you know, they, they have the lower rates of COVID, and also they think they're invulnerable. So they go to these parties, they congregate on the beach, and there's going to be a fallout from that. But it's reached a point where the city itself is essentially declaring war, saying, don't come. Send, I mean, if you're using pepper balls and pepper spray against people coming to your town, that's a pretty serious situation. Um, and I think, obviously, uh, not everybody's just going to leave. Probably people spent money to go there, and so we'll probably be with this story for some time to come, next couple of weeks. And we'll be with the border story, unfortunately, I think for many, many weeks to come as the Biden administration tries to figure out what the hell to do. Well, I hope you had a great weekend, folks. I hope you did have a chance to catch Media Buzz yesterday. All the segments, not just the Jason Miller uh, segment is online. We had Frank Luntz on talking about, he he had a focus group showing that it was all Trump supporters how they don't trust the media coverage of the vaccines. And polls show as many as half of Republican men are going to get the vaccine, which undermines the efforts to protect everybody else through herd immunity. So Frank had some interesting insights on that. We talked about a whole bunch of other things. Have a great day. Give us a subscription if you like. We'll be back here tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.